the podcast for the real world meets the digital world as we explore the intersection of spatial computing and AI. Let's welcome our host, Andrew Ballard. Over to you, AB. Well, g'day. Welcome to Spatial. This is episode six. Yes, we, if you've been listening along and noticed a mini break, we did skip last week's episode. That's okay. Timelines were against us and then this magic thing called a weekend happened. That's okay. We are back with a bit more pre-planning. Although, again, we're down by one. Helena, we'd just like to say happy birthday to you and hope you're enjoying your day off in the wilderness. All good. Yes, we're giving you the visual wave on an audio device. Darn it, that doesn't work very well. Um, look, it has been a big two weeks. There's been a lot of mega trends in, I guess, the spatial space. Uh, the reactions and the fallout from the Vision Pro has been pretty big, and it's gone through a couple of cycles. I don't know whether we've gone through one Gartner hype cycle. Who's the Forrester hype cycle? We've, we've gone through some mini cycles. Um, I think it may have capped off itself when uh, Zuckerberg himself put out a video in the last 24 hours um, saying how his was better, faster, stronger, more awesomer. Which is cool, which is perfectly fine. But I think the best comment was that it's nice that a, a CEO of a $1 billion company sort of, you know, paid out the other $3 billion company. So there's some serious billions in that conversation. So well done, Zuck. Top work. Um, the other sort of trend I'm sensing is that I think most of Reddit is returning their Vision Pros, or at least they say they are. The <laughs> Vision Pro subreddit is full of, yeah, now you know, if I put it back now, I can get my money back. So all good. It definitely is hype cycle. I've been, I've been watching a bunch of uh, reviews that people who normally don't do VR made. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting topic. But most people agree that it's a great extension to Apple's existing ecosystem and not a VR device. You know, that so doesn't really do anything special. It's just, it's just a fancy and very expensive monitor for, for, your, for your existing devices. And it seems to be working quite well in that terms. Yeah. yeah. No, fair call. I put together a uh, my uh, prediction of what's going to be the next device, and I'm calling it now. Of course, it's going to be the Apple Vision Air. They're going to use the Air not only inferring the entry model, but also dang lighter. So that's almost certainly what they're going to come out with next. But my best one-liner I can find is by Casey Nestat. Um, of all things, uh, he basically put forward in a positive light, but in a very true light, saying, this is the worst Apple Vision device you will ever see, which is probably true of all Apple stuff. They'll only get better from here. So absolutely watch this space. The other big thing in the last two weeks has been there have been more Vision language, large language models with Vision attached to them. So we're deep into the multimodal. I don't really know the ratio of how many large language models are text only. But my goodness, vision and getting into the spatial realm. I've been updating our uh, spatial space, our chart of AI models. My next task is to split that into pure text, multimodal, and then a new category called fully spatial. So that is absolutely something to watch. Mega trend. But hey, let's start off with a fast five. There's been a heap of news. This week, it is highly robotic themed. Let's do fast five. Fast five. Alrighty, first fast five, Violet, actually not least uh, into uh, the robotic sphere, but let's start with you. Some awesome news in your part of the world. Go for it. Yeah. So a um, couple links I'm sharing here, um, both related to this project called Open Interpreter. Um, so 
This is an open source project that is a natural language code interpreter. And what I'm really interested in this space for is that, um, you know, coming from the realm of designers and this computational design program, I see a lot of people um, working in tech creatively who are not going to be software engineers. Um, and so we're seeing a big rise in the desire to program with more easy to understand inputs. So um, this is really interesting. It allows you to program all kinds of things on a computer. Um, I think it's JavaScript and Python and maybe some other things, um, but using just natural language. And um, another project that they're coming out with is an open source version of the Rabbit R1. So if you remember that, oh, yeah. it's essentially <laughs> yeah, it's essentially a wearable um, AI pin that allows you to, through speech, um, execute all kinds of commands like book travel and whatnot. Um, so I really like this other trend, not just natural language, but also um, this open source drive towards both software and hardware now around AI. So um, I think this is definitely something to watch as a trend. Absolutely. Um, love that. I uh, love the fact that it's, uh, it appears to be Mac only. I'll take that on notice that it's hopefully probably not, but that's okay. Uh, if it's Python, JavaScript, it should be transferable, but demo certainly look Mac OS. Um, but this is basically not just your copilot inside a code IDE or inside a Python world. This is one of the first things that we've seen that is drag and droppable. It does say it has to, you have to approve every block of code before you do it. So it does show you, although wall of code text is like, hey, looks good to me. Yes, I'll run with that. I'm sure it's going to be press yes to as fast as we press yes to our terms and uh, conditions on any uh, installs that we do. Um, but it does seem that you can add drag and drop text from one application to the other. This can then control other applications. So obviously the question of sandboxing is a good one and it comes with a lot of probably caveats and red flags and uh, buyer beware, use at own risk, but able to cross the streams in that um, advanced mode lets you just drive your personal computer. It's kind of like your Siri or your Google on steroids, able to say, hey, can you open my photos, do five things, come back here, run that into my email, blah, blah, blah. So chain things together going across applications. And then is this the core code that they're going to be running within the open source Rabbit R1 wearable? Is this going to be the, the real... Okay. I I would I would assume it would use the same software they're developing, but um, who knows? Right now, I think the only thing that's been released is a form for folks that want to get involved in developing the open source version of the Rabbit R one. So we'll Excellent. have to wait and You've see. You've signed up. I've signed up. Uh, we'll wait and see. <laughs> if I if I had time, I would gladly, but. Uh, we're over here actually trying to build some of our own natural language programming tools. So <laughs> maybe we'll build into what they've already developed. Excellent. No, great to hear. No, and it's fantastic to see it's open source, open standards, and of course being done out in the public. So that's brilliant. And yeah, by means that means hooks are the way to go as opposed to announcing things and suddenly the world sees it for the first time on day zero. No, cheers <laughs> for that. 
Uh, I might go next with the Fast Five. I've got a, um, a new model called Depth Anything, uh, link in the show notes. Um, love it because it's something that has been done a little bit before, but it really is for me one of the, one of the prime examples of where um, AI is, is able to supersede probably last five, 10 years worth of pain, heartache, engineering that can kind of now be done with a red button and kind of magic wand. So this is doing um, segmenting an image into depth. It gives you a depth map, a grayscale or color scale image of where things are within an image. Um, it does work on images, although they say it's so good and temporally, temporally time-based correct that you can do it for videos and it holds really good. Um, so essentially it lets you have uh, probably, well, for, for my, my point of view, it lets you replace, if you're doing um, robotics, SLAM, uh, synchronous localization and mapping, um, rather than having a plethora of cameras and LiDAR and all sorts of sensors and things everywhere, which is great, but then having to do the hard math to synthesize all that data into a picture of the real world, this lets you use a low-end, cheap Raspberry Pi, GoPro, wow, you know, dusty, gritty, grainy camera, simple RGB camera, and get that same perception of where I am, what's in front of me, what's behind things. And it's just doing that by having been taught a lot of spatial images with depth map in them, and now it learns for more uh, images. Every single frame, it can tell what's in front, what's behind. So yeah, by all means, that is one of those advances for me that is going from hardcore, hard work, a hardware solution, to repeat the word hard too many times in a uh, sentence, to a software-based, low-tech, low-fi, but probably still epic uh, solution. Yes, it doesn't have uh, redundancy. If you had a robot with one of these cameras and mud splashed or the wire broke, you would be sightless. So having two of these probably makes sense, or four of these, but even still, this is like the same way of doing Internet of Things and doing processing on device and just sending back awesome smarts back to a central brain rather than having the brain be half the beast. Um, the nice thing about this depth anything is, and wait for it, there's a paper, there's code, there's a working demo, you can download the model. So I think this will just be this or its predecessor or something very soon thereafter to talk about the open source world. This sort of model will be just about everywhere soon. Um, it even is handy for video editing or photo editing if you want to do a you know a nice um, uh, bokeh effect or a depth of field. Instantly, you can just say background blur, foreground blur. Now that's um, in the art world, and I'm sure Photoshop will have a filter like that within weeks or months. But I love the fact that this is basically this will be bolted onto so many models in the vision language model soon that will just be part of that spatially aware that if you ever aren't sure whether something is in front or behind something this kind of model tacked onto the side which is a nice big hand wave will be one of those tools that will just give you that information so really good how something so profound and awesome is you know pretty much rock solid Perfect. And if this isn't going to be one of the bedrocks of the next 10 years, then it's a success it will be. So quite a powerful model and just showing how fast these kind of techniques can work. All right. So that's me. I'll leave the link to Depth Anything there in the show notes. Uh, William, can I ask for your Fast Five? I have seen it and my jaw is still on the floor, but if you could describe it, that'd be epic. Cheers. Yeah, sure. And so this is a YouTube short from our beloved company, Boston Dynamics. And it's showing what I, it, it's, it's at least the descriptions in the YouTube shorts. And I'm, I'm not very good at navigating shorts in YouTube, but uh, from what it appears to be, 
is um, uh, the robot Atlas um, uh, performing some tasks what I what looks like a competition of sorts, but I'm not quite sure. And what it's doing is it's it's walking back and forth between a supply of um, uh, of suspension something. struts. <laughs> yeah. Is it uh, suspension uh, struts? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it it sort of resembles that, or it also resembles um, uh, like uh, electrical like transformers. But I think you're right. I think it's a suspension um, uh, device, and it so it picks them up out of this crate. It walks around the crate, and then it inserts them onto um, shelving that is. Um, like designed to carry those those devices and i think what's what's remarkable about it and what's getting folks attention is there have been several videos of competing robots over the last couple of months that are showing the ability to sort of autonomously act in real human environments like factories being able to move boxes around and perform tasks and and so forth this particular video is remarkable because of it's Atlas's ability to demonstrate a number of kind of characteristics and um, kind of features of robotics that we're all looking forward to and are somewhat the signatures of Boston Dynamics's um, uh, uh, robotic achievements. So things like demonstrating power and strength, um, but it also demonstrates uh, precision um, in moving these objects around, being able to extract them from a crate vertically and then sort of maneuver them uh, with a kind of um, two-handed dexterity and then walk around with it, so maintaining balance and then inserting them into this, um, into this shelving. It's, it's not quite clear from the video how autonomous this robot is acting at the moment. There seems to be some debate in the comments about how autonomously it's acting, whether it's, it's more like an automaton where that's being directly controlled. But it also, at the same time, is at least in some of the, the clips in the, in the short, they're showing its ability to sort of vision and perhaps even plan and simulate to some degree, or at least it has uh, some of the kind of... Um, 3D object recognition capabilities that that could lead to a more robust planning um, uh, 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 routine. So, but anyway, it's sort of um, catching folks' attention, and so I'm, I'm sure that we're going to see more and more great things coming from Boston Dynamics in the future. Absolutely, this is the robot that's the humanoid one that only I guess 12 months ago was doing parkour. Um, a, a, a year before that was doing, I guess, synchronized dancing with spots. Um, but this is the first time we've seen the hands, the functions, the grippers in action, as well as I think the first time we've seen the camera eye view, which uh, obviously has a digital twin of what it's holding overlaid across the thing that it's holding. So um, mm -hmm. obviously the the, uh, the waterline has been raised. You know, we've gone from it can walk, it can self-balance, it can find its pathing to place. Now it's actually to some level and asterisk how much is it doing it's pre-planning its moves it's doing the task yeah so it's level of autonomy being 100 percent or 90 percent or 80 percent it definitely is on more than 50 percent it's not being told left leg move here right leg there so quite phenomenal to say uh comment of the thread actually i've got to call out this person for where is it? Uh, uh, all the uh, points on the internet go to someone who said, I appreciate this demo because it gets to show Atlas strutting their stuff and stuffing their struts. So yes, that's the task at hand and they're doing it perfectly. But I think most people are pretty much floored by the, by the concept of this thing, which is sizable and able to run, jump and do the parkour that we saw not long ago, now have actionable limbs and um, you know, 
that level of uh, pre-planning. We'll come back to that future of robotics in a, in a couple of minutes. Cheers, William. Awesome. Mirek, over to you with excellent another fast five that we have already looked at and drooled and mm -hmm. jaws hit the floor. Mirek, what do you have for us? Yes, this is very much from the same space, but this time from Norway. So this Norwegian company called One X Technologies published the demo where they're showing about 20, I would assume, humanoid robots uh, that look like a human, but on a Segway or a hoverboard. Uh, so they have wheels, they don't walk freely, but they roam freely around their office and they complete various tasks. So they can pick and place a thing, they can open the door, they can find an object on the floor and put it in a bin. And most interestingly or impressively, they can plug themselves to a charger and when they unplug themselves, they can hook the, 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 the charger where it belongs so that the other robot can find it. This is all pretty impressive. And they claim it is achieved by neural networks that receive images and produce tasks. And they've trained these robots. The, the robot is called Eve. But if you're familiar with Futurum, it very much looks like the robot 1X that was Bender's worst nightmare. So that, that is the similar kind of aesthetic. They are pretty dexterous, as it seems. And they're powered by neural networks that, that, that are fed images and produce tasks for the robot to perform. And they say they train the robot on a pretty decent chunk of data and then segmented these tasks into groups, such as door manipulation or warehouse-related tasks, to sort of made it, make it more practical to sort of equip a robot with, with a certain skill set. And it's very impressive work. Oh, it is. It's phenomenal. Um, it's so phenomenal. The first thought and many of the comments and most of the internet's uh, reaction is this is video trickery. This is CGI everywhere. The rooms they're in are fairly pristine, although with enough noise and roughness to be close. But um, I think it definitely is not being uh, debunked as uh, fabricated. But the way they're able to, um, yes, they've taken some challenges away versus the Boston Dynamics um, Atlas. They are on wheels. Uh, the bottom half does move a bit. I'm not sure where their battery is coming from. That's okay. But um, and they're also wearing this lovely onesie that you know covers some muscle kind of things, which is fine and gives them a bit more of a human um, look. It's it's almost it's almost uncanny, isn't it? it they, they look they look kind of human, but but not really. And the way they move is kind of human-like, but not really. That's it. And their claim, this is a three-minute video. Uh, they're all moving at 1x speed, so it's not simulation. It's like the Atlas one, you know, someone just got a video camera there. But it is panning around multiple rooms with, say, multiple of these 1xs around. There's definitely, what, 20, we think, even 30. The fact that they've built that many is phenomenal. I do wonder whether some in the corners can't do much more than the things that they're doing. So they've been probably selective in which ones are the heroes and which ones are the background actors. But the fact that they're able to do humanoid-like tasks within, you know, they've got the standard uh, Dalek problem of, you know, all-powerful beings just need ramps to get up steps, that kind of thing. That's perfectly fine. It's approaching the general purpose human from a different point of view. So love it. No, brilliant. Thanks for that, Merrick. Tell you what, let's, let's pause there. And we're going to come back in deep dive and follow this exact same topic of the state of robotics and how spatial AI can influence what we've been seeing in the last lead up to the last few months, and what's happening right now, and what we think is going to be happening in the rest of 2024. Back in a moment. Deep dive. 
Okay, welcome back. This is a deep dive. We're going to do a deep dive on robotics uh, or robots. And no, we're not talking the uh, 2005 animated film, Ewan McGregor. I think Robin Williams was in it. No, we're not talking the 2023 robots series of, oh, I haven't got the stars' names in my face. I haven't seen it yet. We're not talking Hollywood. We're talking real world. Um, we really want to um, cover the kinds of topics that bring robots out of the, well, the things on floors, he says, looking behind Merrick at his robot on his floor, and behind Violet and William, who don't have their robot behind them on their floor, but it's probably not too far behind. This is an era where robotics have, in fact, become uh, not such par for the course. I think Roombas are certainly uh, not scary anymore. They're a bit more trusted, although what damage can they do? Um, but we are, I think, on the cusp of robots beyond uh, our Boston Dynamic Spot Dogs or our Anybiotics Dogs uh, being absolutely rare and um, coming into the place where that's becoming more and more possible. As always, battery life is always the killer. And if we could solve that problem, then I think half the world would be ready to take up these things at a moment's notice. But team, I'd like to open up the floor to you all and uh, have you guys um, discuss some of the trends you've seen leading up to the kind of stories we just saw about in Fast Five, the continued, let's say, 20, 30 year rise of Boston Dynamics. It's not an overnight uh, success. It really is the process of blood, sweat and tears. A lot of fast following, but then I'd love to hear how One X and other companies are sort of doing things that are bringing and uh, trying to solve the hardware problem almost first, uh, because they've probably done very well to pre-think the hardware problem as being the tougher, longer, slower path, hoping like hell that the software AI world would catch up. Lo and behold, I guess my one-line summary is the software world is right ready for physical robots to begin to inhabit our spaces. Mirek, that little robot in the back there, what's that one and uh, what sort of, uh, what sort of um, uh, toys to tools are you sort of um, envisaging um, the robot world to be in your personal space? Yeah, this is a rather simple robot. He doesn't do anything more, right? I anthropomorphic him, but he doesn't do anything spectacular yet. It's mainly ROS development platform. And I think what we're seeing is uh, a really strong a trend in uh, training robots with neural nets or providing uh, human examples with teleoperation. And that then really well translates to task that, tasks that these robots can perform. And I don't think that's going away. It's going to only get stronger and better and faster. And this is sort of where I'm going with, with this one. But eventually, little by little, it's you know, a lot to do. <laughs> I was going to say something about the same trend. Um, it's been interesting just seeing so many different papers and methods emerging around the training methods. Um, and there's been such an investment now in things like understanding video data. Um, I was just seeing something from Meta, I believe, uh, around this exo ego or maybe it's ego exo model and the whole idea is that humans learn by watching someone do something and then doing it themselves and so um they have a whole project around getting people to videotape tasks from a third person you're watching someone else 
and then do it themselves and videotape as if they're doing it. And so that's supposed to be this very useful training data that's like, can I map a task that I see happening there to myself? Um, so yeah, I just think it's interesting how much, how important things like video data are going to be. Yeah, the whole latent space of being able to do uh, human tracking limb movement and finger movement just from a video source was pretty rocket science two years ago. I think uh, five years ago would have been pretty out there. But now being able to just look at any video stream and be able to get pose estimation that correct, even including the vital things like, you know, shifting weight and moving limbs in those micro levels, that as a now training data source that is ripe for the course. We could mine any of our millions of hours of YouTube, and I mean millions and billions, um, as potential just fodder for gait walking, for problem solving, mm -hmm. and dare I say it, for the Dalex and step climbing, things like that. Yeah, and it's, it's something that's made me think, you know, um, as a formal, former Google employee, um, you know, I was nervous about where Google was headed in this AI future, but I think the fact that they have YouTube is going to be an amazing asset. There was this moment where they used, and that's years ago, where they used the mannequin challenge, if you remember that, where people would just freeze in public spaces and the, the, the video would pretend like, you know, time stopped. And they used mm -hmm. it to train some neural net that either estimated depth or human pose might seem to be like, you know, a surprising source of very, very uh, good data for for this kind of training purposes. So mm. <laughs> that's kind that's of, interesting. pretty funny. So do you mean my press all the buttons or uh, press all the images with traffic lights or buses or cars in them is going to change soon to predict whether this human in this video is actually a human or moving or gotcha. So there's a new uh, training task on us mere mortals in the works. Maybe the next capture will be, you know, show how you make an omelette and, you know. <laughs> to prove you're a human, indeed. To prove Point you're a human, source. Yeah. Right. It's almost impossible anyway. <laughs> nice. So um, these ways of doing, replicating human movements into Android, into robotic, you know, copies of us. Um, I'm loving the fact that both these examples and indeed the one from Fast Five America about three weeks ago, uh, the one, the robot that was rather shaky, uh, did a lot of, let's say, quite loose movements as opposed to crisp movements. I'll get the name of it, but I'll put the link back in the show notes. Um, how we've gone back to copying humans as being much better than, you know, um, with the, uh, the Atlas stacking those car parts, you could have easily invented a bespoke machine to grab, pick, place, you know, bolt onto the side of the cage. And, you know, a machine could have solved that. Probably could an XY picker, placer with more precision. But it's a bespoke machine that does one thing and does it perfectly. I love how we're regressing back to, I'm going to say it, the Star Wars world of humanoid robots that kind of are a general purpose do anything. It's a cross between mm -hmm. Star Wars, Asimov, Clark, all the all the big sci-fi um, uh, voices who sort of predicted that it may be more acceptable to humans, but also it means it can slide into the kind of things that we might want to do. And again, I have to reference Hollywood and, you know, iRobot and Will Smith and all those sorts of things that are leading, of course, the bad things that happen when that goes on in that uh, dire world just yet, not with Mirex little robot in the background, mm, still circling neatly and 
William Violet, your uh, antibiotics spot dog, probably on charge right right now. But love to sort of hear your thought about whether we're going to continue down this humanoid kind of path more because of these uh, training data, or whether we're going to regress back to purposeful, um, uh, let's say, machinery that is fit for purpose. Well, speaking of speaking of Star Wars. Um, I think we mentioned these robots on the show before, but Disney Imagineering had come out with these bipedal character robots that they were testing in the Star Wars theme parks. And the fascinating part about those was, um, one, the primary goal of these robots is delight. So it's not necessarily um, replacing human capabilities and, and being able to stand in a factory and move boxes around more effectively or just as effectively as a human. Um, the other is the, the way that they achieved that delight was to have the character animators um, be the lead designers uh, as opposed to the, the mechanical engineers. And so they the really the design of the systems and the mechanisms all um, were responding to the prompts from the character animators and the character creators. And then, and then finally, I think when we were speaking of training, um, like this was a, this was a kind of classic simulation environment training where they used a rigid body physics engine to, to train it. And they claim they were able to go from sort of concept to working robot uh, in less than a year. I'm not quite sure uh, I'm not quite sure if that's good or bad. It sounds it sounds pretty good starting from starting from scratch. Especially given how cute they are. <laughs> yes, indeed. And um, similar to our dog from um, from Unitree, like that that companion dog is more about is more about delight than it is really um, performing serious tasks. Although we're working on ways of um, uh, uh, sort of. Uh, building attachments for it, like robot arms and, and whatnot, because we're we're really interested in the utility of it, and because it it has like a ten kilo um, load that you can put on it, which is which is quite significant for a consumer robot. So, um, I'm hoping that um, there's going to still be this um, this trend of like trying to uh, fit the use case, um, and really finding that synergy between use case and technology. So that we're not always trying to seek after the sort of um, bipedal um, type of uh, uh, you know humanoid like android type robot, and um, in fact, I was joking with a student the other day that um, who was interested in um, we were talking about prosthetics um, as, as including as sort of a subfield of robotics in a way, and um, how uh, maybe uh, maybe a goal of her project could be to investigate prosthetics to um, not try to mimic the uh, limb or whatnot that an amputee had had lost, but rather give them superpowers in a more kind of pirate-like way. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do uh, think there, yeah. there's a funny there's a funny trend just of. Or there's so much question right now about when the humanoid robots come in and take all our jobs in the factories, then like, I've heard a lot of people complain about this future where humans just, what do we do in this future and how sad that's going to be. And so it's, it's interesting to think about robots not coming in to take all the jobs per se, but 
maybe you can even design some of these robots not completely utilitarian, but they actually lead to all this delight in the world. They just let us have fun. Yeah, it was interesting, interesting, interesting times, right? I, I, I'm like split on this because I think humanoid robots aren't going away. There's going to be more and more of them. I think to justify the form factor and, and on all the technology that goes into something as universal, you need to either have economy of scale at work to make the robot really, really cheap or have a good reason for that. Like the environment is so complex and set up for humans that you need this kind of form factor because otherwise any other machine that's designed purposefully to, to accomplish the task will be much better than, than a humanoid. And a good example of that is uh, Boston Dynamics uh, handle. If you've seen that robot, it's not you know so flashy as the dogs, but it's this balancing huge robot with one arm that can balance on two wheels. It can get ridiculously fast, lift enormous weights, put it wherever it needs, and it looks nothing like what we've seen anywhere in nature. Maybe an ostrich, you might say, on wheels. Like so, so it's it, it's. That's, that's what you get when you design for a task real efficiently and you're not you know, distracted by what we see around us already in the nature. So I think this is, like, to me, that's the most appealing approach because there's nothing limiting your creativity. And I even think watching that X1 demo, it's actually kind of unsettling. And if you imagine uh, a factory of humanoids that, that, that work in unison and, and, and you know, there's... It's just, just that, and everybody looks kind of like a human. Maybe we may want to dial that down a little because, you know, it's going to bring all sorts of weird emotions into 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 the business of you know, warehouse work that will be automated, but maybe it doesn't need to look like a person. There's going to be one poor soul in that factory with a bunch of those X1 robots floating around, and they're going to hate their life. Ah, they'll be using Miric software to optimize and reroute and, you know, solve all the small problems of clashing paths and, you know, banking up queues in weird places after, you know, day 25. Um, by all means, it does raise and it does cross the streams between the Hollywood view. Um, it does raise the hackles. It does raise the hairs on the back of your head of, you know, um, the X1, you know, is in a lovely mm, pristine-ish kind of four or five rooms. That could be dirty, smelly, that could be the lights off, that could be, you know, it it doesn't have to be exactly like that. It could be a future where there's more of these just doing rote work, you know, uh, God forbid the college students on roller skates in Amazon's back warehouses trying to pick and pack X thousand per hour. Again, these are classic stories of are we replacing work or are we helping with better work, that kind of topic. Um, the humanoid approach, yeah, means that things can fit into human spaces. They can easily slip into the patterns that we humans have set in our routines past. Um, I am always still aghast at the um, the battery equation of, yeah, these are great, but um, apart from the X1 where they neatly plug themselves in, um, you know, these things are generally going to last, what, half hour, one hour before behind the scenes cut video okay, six hours of plugging and unplugging to get things back up to full capacity. Um, we are on the cusp of solving these topics, yeah. Mm -hmm. I also think there's a cultural dimension to it as well. Um, like there, isn't, there is definitely an uncanniness to the X1 robots that we were mentioning. 
Um, and uh, I, I think that um, in a lot of ways, at least in the United States, um, a lot of our sort of expectations around artificial intelligence and robotics have actually come from Hollywood, as you mentioned. And I, like the, the, I keep thinking of The Terminator, um, which was, uh, you know, the cult film. I guess it was 1984 or, or thereabouts when it, um, when it was released. Uh, that, that particular robot was supposed to be a metaphor for um, corporate capitalism, actually, um, coming, after, coming after humans. And they, um, but I, and and so that sort of that sort of started this this notion. I, there is probably also similar notions in the early sci-fi that aired on television, like Lost in Space and whatnot. Like we, I, I tend to put these clips into my my courses. Sometimes the students understand the references, and sometimes they don't. Um, but um, but if we look at East Asia, um, there are a lot of robots that are being specifically designed to care for the elderly, um, to inhabit. Uh, hospital spaces. Um, I, when I back in October, I saw a video when I was um, in Vancouver, actually, um, that was uh, a South Korean research group that had released robots that looked so darn cute, quite intentionally, to be companion robots for elderly, and particularly elderly um, that were experiencing symptoms of dementia, just early symptoms of dementia. And so it was, they were intended to be these sort of um, lovable creatures that were more akin to like plush animals, like stuffed animals, than they were um, some other type of robot. And so the, the utility there is really about that sort of companionship um, a kind of emotional response that's um, desirable rather than something that sort of strikes terror into us. Um, so, Is my memory so correct? Was, it, that, was that the Furby craze? I mean, not your robots from here, but was that the Furby? I'm thinking 20 years ago was the Christmas toy of choice for every kid. It's a small um, yes, owl thing, thing. Anyway, that, that yes, sort of thing to be reassuring. I'm re reminded yeah. of a um, a Radio Lab episode where they expose the benefits of um, artificial voices like Siri, who just never grow tired in the realm of um, um, kids who um, autistic or other challenges who could just never wear out. You could ask, but why, mm -hmm. but why? And as parents would get quite frazzled, these virtual assistants don't get frazzled. They just keep on keeping on. So um, is this the same sort of realm of uh, robots for um, uh, emotional comfort purposes as opposed to world domination or factory and, you know, uh, factories of the future. Yeah. It seems like there's so many use cases in the home as well, like beyond the, beyond the factory and industrial use case, um, we're already welcoming so many things into our homes. So many people already have Roombas. Technically, the Bali, would you consider that a robot that's just come out? You know, it's got the projector and moves around. So I, I think the cuteness factor is definitely here to stay. And I, I do wonder, um, yeah, to what degree will we first see the utilitarian use case? Like, at what, is it more likely I'm going to buy something that's going to load the dishwasher? Or is that really hard and expensive and I'm first going to get something that's going to help me join my video calls and be friendly while it's doing it? Yeah, the stages of um, acceptance are definitely smaller, more focused, single or a couple of purposes. 
the humanoid equivalent is going to be really rough. But I also also love to look forward to a future where we do get back into the, what's the big bird, the Boston Dynamics, the picker, um, where we get into robots that are different form factors that can do jobs actually 2x better than what we can do them, as opposed to simply mirroring the kind of expectations that we would. In the same way that the uh, 1x robot in Merrick's video is, they're slender, they've got a wheeled base, obviously they'll have a tipping point at some point. Um, Atlas and his crew. Uh, they're working on a walking version of that. Nice. But I don't think it's necessary, you know? No. That's, that's no, where that I'm coming from. Makes it more complicated, probably shortens battery life, and the tipping point then gets rougher. Atlas is phenomenal how it's got the stability. Yes, all those videos of, you know, humans hitting it with a broom and causing it to, yes, all the fake ones where it goes rogue, but that's okay. Um, but um, Atlas is chunky. It's actually got extra meat on its chest and its legs are not slender it's it's starting to get built for a bigger purpose than just you know it's human maybe silhouette but it definitely isn't human sized hollywood has a lot to answer for there, there was also um somewhere along the somewhere along the line um speaking of robots in east asia i i recall several years ago a robot that was released that was um actually quite tiny it was something that you could you could hold in your hands. Uh, sim like I, I think it would be similar um, to a Furby in some ways, um, but it um, it was it was released on a on a kind of interesting premise. One was like there are a number of East Asian companies that are sorry East Asian countries that are experiencing low birth rates, and the ideal was was this companion robot would. Um, uh, essentially act as uh, a, a surrogate child in a way. So you would care for it, like similarly to you would care for, um, you know, a, a, a digital pet or something like that. But then, then in this case, embodied in this small robot. It was designed to be cute. It was designed to, to sort of speak in baby-like ways to make the idea of having a human child um, more, um, uh, like to, to make that idea more amenable to people. So, nice. um, make He's people more amenable earlier. to that idea. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, actually, the conversation. Yes. that's actually a very interesting idea. If you have people who, uh, who uh, lack companion and would like robots to care for, this is an amazing way to train a neural net over years and years of interaction. And, you know, the same way you train a human baby. Mm. Oh, yeah. There we go. Yeah. There's your training data. Well, hasn't that been I put forward in Hollywood a lot of, um, heck, I'm even going back to 2001 Space Odyssey. Um, Hal was meant to be birthed by its uh, creator and was an infant for many years. And over the course of, I'm going to say, five years, it got up to an adult level of comprehension. I guess that, you know, going with one model for five years is something that, uh, in uh, 2024 ain't going to happen because models are coming out far too fast and we can, you know, big borrow steel from others. But I wonder now if we actually are already eclipsing that curve and we can go more with the models that we've got running now with spatial awareness, large language models that not only have image input, but that depth perception and that relativeness. Um, I wonder how long it'll be before the hardware that we're looking at today married to the software that was just on the cusp. 
Yeah, I think um, there might have been a, a kind of similar moment, maybe in the early 2000s, when drones started to become popular. Um, and I, I think it was all of a sudden when we started seeing sort of the Mavic drones and, and little tiny things that we could buy and play with. And um, I think that that was due to the convergence of a number of technologies all at once, one being like small single board computers, right? Things like Arduinos and Raspberry Pis. Um, another being the sort of control systems, maybe even some machine learning based, um, and another and being able to to use um, really small sensors, things like accelerometers and whatnot to to put on these devices, but also really strong motors, um, probably ones that even utilized rare earth metals or something like so you could get a lot of power out of putting four small motors onto this single board computer oh and battery technology yeah. all at once so like not these like super heavy nickel cadmium batteries but you could actually get like really small batteries with tick that could not only store enough charge but deliver enough power to the motors and so all of those things coming together at once particularly in like the hacker community probably like created drones and I, I wonder if we're approaching one of those moments for robotics now where things like neural networks control systems um, computer vision the availability of inexpensive hardware um, like the experience that engineers now have in all of these different all of the different areas and disciplines required to put one together if now we're about to approach that moment when you know robots are everywhere and we'll be accustomed to them so well I'm looking at three people who together after a podcast episode a couple of weeks ago Ago, started to join forces about the robots that you've got with the open source how <laughs> hackable to end the episode uh can the three of you sort of give any preview or a bit of a lift the lid on the kind of things you're working at if not uh, together but definitely forming of you know hacking the robots that you have now so that they can be controlled commanded viewed through you know fetch coffee that kind of thing i know <laughs> there's no definite project but what are the sort of the inklings that you've got for this year well, um, even over the past couple of weeks, I'm with the Unitree Go 2 robot. I'm just trying to get to a place where we can program it uh, efficiently. So starting, I, I'm about to reach out to the Unitree folks. They've um, prompted an email with a few of their, um, I think, engineers and, and sales folks that I can respond to. But being able to program it... Um, is a bit tricky at the moment because it's in the app which i have on my um on my iphone and i believe you have to be connected to the robot and have it on for you to enter that environment and that's that's a bit of um, a constraint that makes it awkward to program in a kind of graphical environment where you have to learn the environment, but you only have a few hours of battery like um, on the device itself and hearing the sort of like I, I wouldn't want to wear out the motor on the lidar just to um, while I'm like paging through, and and trying to you know debugging code, yeah, a, a graphical, yeah, like a graphical program there. So right now for us, it's really just the rudiments of like how can we actually program this? Can we give feedback to Unitree and like get some uh, insights onto how we can um, interact with it um, more effectively? So. Um, the only other thing I'd say is like one thing I'm really interested in and have been looking a lot at trying to think more about and will likely be researching more this year is just how from language we can understand spatial instructions and tasks so um been thinking a lot about 
with natural language programming, um, when you give an instruction, when you say something, how do you infer what are the common things in language that help us understand what we're talking about, like what object, but also where it's at. And um, I think that'll be a really interesting thing to watch with robotics is how do we parse language for very explicit instructions when we speak so generally. I hear you. I'm happy to volunteer myself as a parent uh, four times over of, no, no, not the other one, the other one, no, 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 no. Yeah, that kind of <laughs> I think world we should is use... quite common. I'm very keen to buy these um, laser finger gloves that you use at raves that are laser pointers. And then I think in the future we just use those. Just nice. point at anything. Very good. <laughs> William's very... very for it, you can tell. <laughs> Is very few. What's on your roadmap for not only the uh, the robots in the background, but then larger robots? What's what's next for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I was just thinking while you were all talking that we're seeing this convergence of multiple different things. Andrew, you mentioned the depth from anything. I have a camera here that can do the same thing in hardware, and it's really good. I, it's it's by this company called Luxonis. And so it's it's a camera that comes with like 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 a tip that produces a lot of heat, but you can also upload your neural model on it, and then you can run it on a camera. So it's a different approach to to doing exactly you know various computer vision related tasks, maybe that you want to do with neural net these days because of efficiency. And having it in in such a neat packaging means means that you don't have to then you can just have this device solve the task for you and plug it into the robot and it's it's a component for you and you don't have to upscale the whole you know the whole robot the whole machine you don't you need some power but you don't need gpu on top of this to to, to do that kind of calculations nice. yeah. and so for years we've been seeing topics and, and and tasks sort of getting more developed and converging like a few years ago it was Unimaginable. You remember when Boston Dynamics first started to to teach their their first prototype to walk, right? And nowadays you can get a you can get a dog or you can get a robotic dog from China that influencers get to look cool, right? And it walks, and it, it's no longer an issue. And we've been having, you know, for years and years, there's been this issue of navigation and understanding the space around you. These days, you just get it as a, as a ROS package, and, and it may, most likely, it will work on the hardware setup that you're working with. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's considered to be a soft topic, uh, like many others. So all these things are kind of converging together uh, with, you know, uh, the, 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 the market's flooded with cheap motors, interestingly enough that been developed for hoverboards that nobody that nobody uh, uh, wants anymore so roboticists have been repurposing these these cheap parts that are available for you know and mass to to do something interesting with with robots and these motors are actually really power efficient really strong you just need to figure out how to drive them because they haven't been built for robotics but you know all these things are sort of coming together and when you have a system that sort of can navigate itself and or can detect an object or can you know estimates estimate depth uh, around itself or you know doesn't bump into a person or can follow a person really easily this camera can can do that it's just you know this component that you plug in you work with this thing and then you can have your robot follow you around uh, so these things solve different issues and you can introduce higher level decision making with something that you know we're seeing being uh, 
uh, explored in terms of large language models. And, you know, it's pretty much your neural cortex that you plug into a system like that, that knows what it can perform, but it's just giving high level commands to the subsystem that then, you know, are individually getting better and better every year. Uh, it's very interesting to watch, very interesting to be part of it. And yeah, I, I don't know what this is going to do, but the robot's getting bigger and smarter and we'll see. Excellent. I'm wrapped to hear that. I'm going to have to live um, through you guys, uh, I, I hate to say, the next few years. Um, I don't know if you do or don't know, but I actually would have loved to build robots straight out of high school, but there were no such courses back when I was doing my um, undergraduate. I got relatively close, but I was shoehorned into robotics on manufacturing lines, which here in Australia don't exist as much anymore. So I, I picked a better diversion, but still um, absolutely thriving on watching this um, renaissance come back. Um, look, I think you're all right. The uh, convergence is absolutely here. It's interesting insights, the fact that the drone industry had the same thing 20 years ago. The failed hoverboard industry, I think medical insurance may have gotten the better of hoverboardists around the world, although I guess scooters are fraction safer. But those technology steps are leading us now to, yeah, the problems of locomotion and precision motors are good. Cameras, input devices, Internet of Things, doing more end computing rather than central computing is fantastic. AI models are getting better and better. I'm, I'm actually not really sensing as much. I'm thinking that the robots we've been talking about today and seeing today in Fast Five are probably using last year's vision models. They're not really using the ones that could be spoken to. They are, as um, uh, we've been talking about, you know, hard coded, maybe not hard coded, but coded by hand as opposed to, you know, trained. But um, I guess the convergence of all these things, um, to Violet's point, is that the training is so much reminding me of the birth of child and first five, ten years of um, it takes time to... In this family, we've always used the phrase that someone told us to raise the waterline. Um, I might get a few quizzical stares from you three, but that means that when you've got a baby that doesn't move, you can have your TV remotes on the coffee tables and, you know, stuff on low uh, desks. And then as child starts to crawl and pull things off tables, you raise the waterline. You literally have to put things that are precious up and up and up until that level of trust, let's say, is, um, is right there. I think we're seeing the exact same sort of multi-year pathing of um, we're getting to the point where if we can just get some more training, then we'll solve the hardware problem because of componentry and that'll feed itself. But I think we've got the last, uh, maybe one of the last missing links of if we can train these things to do the kind of tasks that we desperately want to do. Um, I'll leave a link in the show notes to an Australian academic, name escapes me, I shall put it in the links, has a website called Fetch Me The Spoon. It was a hypothesis about three or four, five years ago of when AI can do this, I, I will be happy. So a thought experiment of the computational and spatial and contextual knowledge to ask your toddler to go and get me a spoon from the cutlery drawer is immense. And if you can connect the dots and if an AI or a robot can fetch me a spoon from the kitchen and come back with the right thing, then that was their criteria for made it. And now we're into open territory of almost asking anything. So to everyone's point, it's that final convergence. If we can get it to do these things, to do tasks that are I guess equivalent to a five-year-old, that might be good enough to have these things closer by for everyday life.
Look, team, thank you so much. That is probably just only barely scratched the surface of uh, robotics. We will absolutely be following this topic throughout the year. Um, a lot of the topics will be watching the hardware, the software, the interfaces, the use cases. But more the point, the three of you, Merrick, Violet and William, I'm actually looking to you to uh, keep on uh, promoting your, uh, your own tools, play toys and exploits with your own uh, robotic buddies there. And when they can fetch me a spoon, please let us be the first to know. That'd be great. Will do. Okay, from us, we'll leave it there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you next week. And shall we finish with the, I guess, can we pre-go the, the now finish we need to say, I, for one, bow before our robot overlords. Is it too early to, to end a digital podcast with that phrase? Or are we okay for a few more years? Never be too careful. Okay, okay. Risk averse. Okay, so robot overlords, we were first. All good. Thanks, everyone. Catch you next week on Spatial. Thanks, team. If you'd like more news and insights about Spatial AI or have a story or interesting topic you'd like us to cover, reach out to us. Better yet, come and join the community at Spatial. All the links are in the show notes. 